Welcome to Mountain Whispers Podcast. I'm Tim Stewart, and this is a show exploring the deeper lessons that we learn from the outdoors. I chat to badass people within mountain culture about how they got to where they are, peak experiences, hard lessons around fear, risk, injury, and death, and everything in between. The aim is to explore how adventure sports and the outdoors help us find meaning and transformation. In this episode, I chat to professional snowboarder and environmental activist Maria Fransroy. We chat about her beginnings as a snowboarder and how she turned pro while living the snowboard bum life in Whistler. We chat about what that was like, how there was a distinctly different culture in the early 2000s where you could turn pro without even knowing the name of a trick, let alone getting the professional lessons that you seem to need today. In exploring the topics of risk and fear, Marie shares her take on the balance between focusing your attention on the outcome you want, i.e. manifesting, versus having a sense of realism around accounting for all the possible risks and dangers of the backcountry. She goes into detail of the accident she had in 2010, which left her with a broken neck, and the lessons she learned about the difference between being internally motivated versus motivated by the footage you capture. Finally, we spend the second half of our conversation talking about her shift into environmental activism. Marie talks about the 2015 documentary she created called The Little Things, featuring David Suzuki, as well as the challenges and backlash that one receives when they take a stand for the environment. It's sad that the moment you add your voice to an environmental movement, you're often scrutinized based on the amount of energy your home consumes or the the fact that you own a snowmobile. It's a reality that often means public figures choose not to speak out about these contentious issues rather than take a stand because it puts a, a target on your back. Marie shares her wisdom on the balance between taking a stand for this planet while also recognizing that you can't be perfect with your environmental footprint. And it's important to recognize that travel or other carbon-using pastimes is what recharges us or energizes us to take a stand. And we can't let the fact that we're not environmentally perfect stop us from doing something to protect our planet. This was a very rich conversation. I'm so glad I got to chat with her. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Marie Fransroy. I'm here with Marie Fransroy, pro snowboarder and environmental activist. Marie, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing great as well. And you're currently in... Vancouver Island in your cob house is that correct yes I'm mm-hmm. currently in UK uh, just after uh, the cyclone and we made it pretty good uh-huh you in the <laughs> house how long ago was it that you actually uh constructed that um I would say well it took me four years to build and it wasn't just me so uh I had a lot of help especially my brother and my father and some friends uh so it was a it was a long-term process i didn't want to put a deadline on it but 
I built it in four years and I've now lived in it for about four years. So. Amazing. Uh, and, and I'll share a link to some of the articles about it with pictures that in the, in the show notes, because it really is gorgeous. Um, do you, I, I imagine you spend a lot of the winter traveling or what does your year look like between shooting and, and travel and, and what do you do in your summers and things? question eh? <laughs> i do a lot of different things so typically i'm in whistler area pemberton for six months so basically from november december until end of april and then this is when i when the spring comes i head back to the coast of vancouver island and i initially made that move because i wanted to learn how to surf and i wanted to <clears throat> have a better balance between the mountain environment and also an ocean environment that was always a big pull for me and uh i also you know like being a snowboarder for a living it's great it's living the dream but i like variety i like diversity and sometimes i needed a little break from that scene from that world and just to do something totally different be a part of a different community and then feel really refreshed coming back to it every fall absolutely work yeah yeah like the the being like absolutely committed and uh and and bought in to that winter is like i, I imagine makes a difference when you're doing it for a living and so being able to fully refresh yourself over the summer makes that difference right for sure at the beginning like it's all i wanted to do all year round and that's what i did for sure for a while um but <clears throat> you know it's like it's like cheesecake i love cheesecake but if you eat it every day yeah. appreciate it a bit less and I, I just wanted to keep that stoke and I wanted to yeah I really wanted to learn how to surf and I love the the wildness of this place I love the community here so <clears throat> for me it was like a perfect fit and to have a bit of both world is like the best case scenario really mm -hmm. how transferable is is snowboarding um with uh surfing or even skateboarding I think do you do a little bit of skateboarding too yeah, I love skateboarding too, although that's probably uh, the toughest one for me. But it's just like skateboarding is just so hard. And um, surfing is so hard too, though. It's, it's, they're, they're all like pretty, like, it's pretty easy to just get out there and have fun. But like snowboarding, I think, is the easiest, right? Like it takes a day or two of suffering and then you kind of get the, like, you know, the, the, the methods to just make a couple turns and you link them and you're like oh I get it and then from that point you can have a pretty decent day on the mountain where skateboarding can be similar but it's just like you know to coast around the skate park to roll around and it's kind of like easy to learn but then if you want to get into tricks it can be pretty pretty painful at times and then surfing is more of a, a lesson of patience because you have this snowboarding skateboarding background and you think you're going to be like this coordinated person that's gonna crush surfing right away and it's definitely not the case it's just it's really humiliating like uh, not humiliating <laughs> it's like you go out there and it takes forever to even catch waves to read the ocean and uh, like you just think you'll surf for a year and be really good but really you've been I've been surfing for over 13 years and I'm still not that good at all <laughs> but uh -huh. I enjoy it you just have to put your ego aside and be willing to learn something new and just enjoy the power of the ocean and being submerged in that water element, which is beautiful to me. Yeah, that's uh, that resonates a lot. I, I've been um, I, I've only been skiing for a couple of seasons, and um, 
I like I started skiing just so that I could spend time in the backcountry. And um, the the reality is the last two seasons in the backcountry has been like mostly skinning up and then just trying to survive on the downhill. Uh, but like in your reframe, when, when I reframe it as like I'm just like having fun in the backcountry, it makes it all worthwhile compared to the fact that like if I spend a whole day out there and and only like got like one or two solid turns in like it's very easy to see it as a failure right uh, exactly yes yeah. but it's not a yeah. failure you're, you're just still having fun and mm-hmm. yeah I think it's just about yeah enjoying the experience no matter what your performance is we forget that too often <laughs> yeah. let's um rewind a little bit I, I I'd love if you could just share a story on how you um how you got to where you are how, how you fell in love with the the, the mountains and and what, what turned you from loving the mountains to going pro? Uh, yeah, so I grew up in Quebec and uh, in the countryside, like very rural area, um, northeast of Quebec City, about an hour and a half. And um, I grew up with my two older brothers and mainly my dad. My parents separated, separated when I was nine years old. And when they did, my dad decided to get back into skiing and he said, if you guys are willing to help me a lot around the house and get some summer jobs, I'll pay for your gear. I will just buy you guys a, a season's pass for Christmas and then we'll go to the hill every weekend. That will be our one thing because I don't have enough time or money to watch you guys play hockey. So <laughs> that was the deal. And then, um, yeah, I fell in love with the mountains. I learned everything to my, through my older brothers and their friends. And, um, it, it changed my life entirely. Like even back then, I didn't ever think I would make it as a professional snowboarder, but it just gave me so much um, sense of belonging, self-esteem and, and like uh, facing your fears. All these things are so important as a teenager. And I was lucky to have that. And, and my dad forced them to take him to take me with them with the squad and they were not too happy about that but it, it really shaped me and I'm really thankful for those years and uh eventually they were you know they they, they pursued a construction career because my dad had a construction business and I went to school and applied applied ecology after high school but I always kept competing my brothers never were that into it and I just kept going to events little events here and there because I just love to meet people, love snowboarding, and I like to push myself. And I met some really kind people that pushed me to go to more bigger events and uh, hosted me in their house. Um, and yeah, eventually I, I was like, okay, this is, this is pretty cool. And I had my final internship at the Vancouver Aquarium for my program. And I was like, well, before I get a real job, I should probably do a one season in Whistler to experience what it's like in the winter. Cause I had been there one summer during my, my college years, just living in my car and <laughs> working every day. But I did spend one day up on the camp of champs and on the glacier. And I was like, well, I have to come back when it's pow and see what these big mountains are about. So I did that. And uh, yeah, during that winter, I just got opportunities and sponsorships and I was sent to bigger, better events and I've, I've been doing this now for a living for the last 15 years and I definitely didn't plan that <laughs> wow 
and and so that all stemmed from just one one winter at Whistler or tell me about that that winter at Whistler yeah that winter in Whistler was awesome I was living I was living in a house with a friend of mine that I knew from Quebec and I was sharing a room with two other Japanese girls that didn't speak English it was awesome and uh yeah I just went snowboarding a bunch I was working two jobs um I was working housekeeping during the day and then at the keg steakhouse at night and uh especially in the fall and then that I was snowboarding as much as I could and I entered a few events and I just got lucky and did pretty well and then eventually one day uh I was working busing tables at the keg and this guy came in and he's like I've been looking for you for a year like I haven't seen you like since the U.S. Open and he was the Oakley um he was the Oakley team manager for Canada and he was a pro snowboarder himself uh his name's Derek Height really great guy and he's like here's a contract for three years and we want you to be on the team for Oakley and the contract was just so so little money but I was ecstatic I was just like this is amazing like I can't believe you're willing to pay me to snowboard uh but everything like just went from there like just that winter in Whistler was definitely a lot of partying a lot of like you know powder the best powder days of my life and just like meeting like new friends I remember like my first time actually going to Whistler was that first summer and I I saw within five minutes somebody with their on their mountain bike full of mud coming down from the hill in August and then someone else was walking down the road with their snowboard and it was like 25 degrees out and then this guy was on a skateboard in a full suit like a business suit with like nice fancy shoes and he was like going to work yeah on his skateboard so I was like this is my people <laughs> this is my place like I I love where I'm from but I was just like felt felt really in love with that culture of snowboarding like that fringe community of uh, just more like like a non like structured environment I love sports growing up I did a bunch of sports but I love that snowboarding was so free and and there was no rules and and it was just the coolest thing at the time so it's cool to be a part of it yeah that's what uh it what, what stands out to me a lot about moving here i've been been in in canada uh about two and a half years now and and just specifically this area in lower mainland or, or cedar sky is that anyone who moves here they're typically moving here for a specific reason and so they're bought into that reason and and it feels like a like a hotbed of of, of culture around mountain sports specifically uh, for yeah. sure it's really the culture that's it and and I mean it's pretty rare the places in the world where you have that so strong in Whistler I mean back in the days like it was like now I mean it's still a really strong culture but back then it was like it was the place to be I stopped in Banff too and, and Banff was really cool but like Whistler was really where the industry was taking off and there was a lot more events and like I don't know I just felt like all the opportunities were there and the backcountry was a whole other world that like like I hadn't even touched yet and I was just like there was just so much to offer and so many people coming together to experience it all and, and that valued it more than back east like you know it's all about the career and get a house and a family and 
and and a nice car and that's just not what I was after Mm -hmm. something that stood out to me and and it stands out to me is uh, about um like snowboarding is that there's very few sports where like you can um like you can become a professional athlete what like in, let's take this winter at the same time as like be partying all the time as well what is uh what, what did your training and your progression look like in in the park <laughs> through there like was there structure to it or were you just getting out into the snow as much as possible oh yeah there was no structure whatsoever and it's so funny to me like still to this day i I cannot comfortably call myself an athlete because <laughs> this is a joke. Like, I, I don't know. I've had opportunities and I have worked with trainers, but way later, way later. And, um, you know, snowboarding was not like that. It was just like, you're just snowboarding as much as you can. You're, you didn't even have anybody to teach you anything except the magazines and the videos. Right. And even have access to that was difficult. Like we only had one video that we watched over and over and over. And I remember being high school, going to the one store that sold snowboarder mag and I didn't read English. So I was just looking at pictures. Right. So (laughs) I remember being like pretty advanced into snowboarding and not knowing any grab names, any faux pas, like still only spinning one way. (laughs) Like, grabbing the wrong place until people are just like hey these are the rules you can't do that you have to do this and I'm like oh what I I didn't know that like I didn't know what's cool or not cool (laughs) so it's quite funny but it's really a culture thing and that's I think that's what we loved about it that it wasn't structured it wasn't like there wasn't a regiment and there wasn't a coach or and it's totally fine that it's now become that and I think the whole Olympic um, avenue has really changed snowboarding but I don't think it's all bad. Like, I think it's just different. And uh, as long as, you know, I, I just hope that the initial culture stays alive. I think it will always be there. Um, but now it's multi-generational. You know, you have the people, like the generation I looked up to, they're still snowboarding. And it's pretty cool. Like, because when, when I was growing up, like there was no older people snowboarding. It was just uh, all young people. And now you have like older people people my age young people is it's pretty cool I think it's matured a lot and there's still a lot of maturing to do but yeah I I kind of appreciate that there's something for everyone in snowboarding and it's kind of not anymore seen as this punk rock (laughs) scene and attitude which is pretty cool and it can still be that but also it can be just a way for people to get outdoors or a way for to empower people of minorities or giving access to people otherwise wouldn't be outside or even just uh, I don't know get give self-esteem to teenagers going through rough time or just having like older people going out there and having fun with their friends like you know keeping the culture alive I just think it's yeah it's it's a it's a beautiful tool for so many great things absolutely um and so uh you it sounds like you started specifically in the park what what did the progression into backcountry look like for you yeah I definitely I mean I started even no park we we had so many petitions going on at my home resort to have a park and it is this great resort called the massive and uh 
I'm yeah, I'm super grateful for that resort, but like we really wanted a park and we never got one until like later when after I left. But eventually moving out west and like going to contests, like like being exposed to so much more park was really like what unlocked a lot of my freestyle abilities. And um it was kind of a, a natural progression in the snowboard world to like most riders will go from a park environment because it's the most accessible right so if you go to resort nowadays most people like you can easily get to a park pretty much everywhere where the backcountry takes a lot more to access it takes it takes the tools it takes the gear the knowledge and the people to go out there with so it definitely was this more and to be fair when I was moving to Whistler like there was it was not that new but it was still fairly new there was one generation before me that had really pioneered it and and like you know the the next generation was just starting to go out there so yeah that's it happened from me going to contest honestly and realizing after a while that I liked filming way better and I was not consistent enough of a writer to do that great at contest I wasn't that bad but because I was always filming at the same time I just felt like I never had full focus on contests and I really enjoyed filming even if it was like urban rails back in the days or and then slowly eventually venturing in in the backcountry which takes so much time because you you have to learn on a snowmobile <laughs> you have to learn how to read the terrain and 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 you have to have the crew so you can be you know anyone can be out there and be like I want to go in the backcountry but if you don't have anybody to go with it's it's first of all really unsafe and not nearly as fun so yeah so I was lucky that all these things align later a bit later in my career and yeah I never really looked back after that this has been my favorite since mm -hmm. what what I um like love most about the backcountry is just what it forces you to learn about about the terrain and and about um like little things like proper layering and and um like other just other proper considerations any of the risk factors anytime you go into to the backcountry um what was that process uh, of learning for you like or or maybe it's slightly different because you're filming but um what were some of the key learnings from that period oh man to be fair, I'm still learning every day. And the first, I'm still looking back at my first few years out there and it, it's, it's quite uh, troubling, the things <laughs> that we didn't know and that we should have known, but you know, it's, we didn't know anything different and we were just out there doing our best and uh, being as safe as possible. But now the level of safety has gone way up and there's more education and I think it's really great. And even from the gear, like, we used to go out there with cotton and everything like not really you know I come from a park background so back then I didn't really need top of the line equipment um for like you know to stay dry like I'm not gonna go in the park if it's like raining out but <laughs> sometimes if you're in the backcountry it could be snowing up there and then you end up like at the bottom and in a totally different environment or you might want to go overnight so it's it's a very different game and you're dealing with going uphill where you're sweating a lot and the next thing you know you're on the ridge and you're freezing so yeah I've yeah I've gone through that whole process of learning just by being with people that are more experienced than me and 
willing to take me on and and also working with brands that like are making these products for these for these reasons and it, yeah it's amazing the evolution and being able to give feedback and work on products together that's like yeah that's really interesting and yeah I think I think there's so much to be learned in the backcountry and in, in those mountains it's a process that never ends to be honest mm. but what does shooting look like um for you in, in terms of like uh the average season like how many projects are they how long do they last like are they for films or are they uh like are you shooting like adverts for gear or what is it what does that look like a bit of everything yeah so sometimes usually projects are either a year to a two year long if it's a movie project for example right now we have a a series coming out that my good friend robin vengeance like uh directed uh it's called uh, fabric and so this one is a five-part series featuring uh, mainly female surfers skateboarders artists snowboarders activists and yeah it's kind of storytelling uh about each of these individual stories it's yeah it's really exciting it's coming out this fall and Another example, sometimes it's short-term projects. Like uh, we have a film coming out with Patagonia about the bugaboos to Rogers Pass tra Traverse that we did uh, last spring. And so the trip itself was maybe a three-week window. Uh, I mean, the, the project itself was maybe a three-week window shooting where fabric has been a, a two-year process. And then mixed with that, you have different, yeah, marketing campaign so with the brands you work with that they, they might want to go out for a week or a day and, and gather content for for campaigns so yeah there's a bit of everything mixed in there mm -hmm. <laughs> it's all really fun Ch changing gears a, a a little bit something i uh, that that interests me a lot uh, about any mountain sports is um learnings around and making decisions around fear risk and and, and high consequence um can you share a little bit more about your experience with um like fear when you're out uh in the backcountry or um or kind of how your 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 thinking around risk has evolved over time yes uh for sure i think um I'm, at least i can only speak for myself but Fear is always there for me. Like, I mean, not always, but like, you know, when we're filming and we're actually getting after it, like, like almost every day you'll get into some situation where fear is involved or like you have a challenging line and you're like, okay, like, and you have to make this decision. Am I willing to, you know, do this? What is the risk versus reward? And, and, um, my process you know some people really like to ignore what can go wrong and that's how they, they they focus on the positive and that's how they manifest everything going right where I'm someone who I I like to analyze uh what could go wrong and so that I can think about okay are we prepared for this so do I if if we need rescue whether it's for me riding or someone else I like to be like okay what does a rescue look like right now at this time of day at this location? Um, just because I want to be fair to the people I'm with when I'm taking risk. And you will never be able to eliminate it fully. But uh, I think that 
at least it's it's our job to make it as safe as possible and that's what it to me gives me longevity so definitely as I'm getting older and after all the injuries I'm becoming pickier and as I'm learning more about the mountains and like avalanche hazards I'm like I know so much more that I didn't know before like it's pretty so I I need a lot more factors to line up for me to feel confident but that's how I want to operate because I I don't want to take unnecessary risk and we've lost so many people to the mountains in situations that could have been avoided. And I, I want to be a leader in, you know, showing that it's okay sometimes to, to not ride the sickest line and that, you know, we, we should, there's always going to be another day and to appreciate just to be out there. And, and the fact that sometimes you can turn away from your objective or the line you wanted to ride and it's still okay. You can have a sick day, but, sometimes there's a lot of pressure especially filming or even going out on a day with your friends you put in a lot of work to get there and there could be some question marks and some people like to push it and sometimes it's okay but sometimes it's not and yeah I'm definitely as I get older more on the making sure everything is as safe as possible and yeah managing the fear and yeah, like I said, sometimes you have to be willing to go too, right? It's you're you're but at least you know, okay, something happens, I can trust my team. They know exactly what I'm doing. We have good communications. And if something happens, we have a plan. So that's what I try to focus on. Mm-hmm. I I really liked um or well, I'm interested in the different perspectives of um like laying out everything that can happen versus the idea of of only focusing on the positives because that because what you focus on manifests I, like i i can see the logic of that but it's also it does seem to expose yourself to a little bit more risk and in, in not being willing to like plan for contingencies or or entertain all possibilities um, yeah i mean i just i'm definitely not doing this to i, I really believe in manifesting <laughs> like so I, I get when people are like, well, don't bring this up. They don't want to hear these <laughs> risk factors <laughs> before they drop. And like some of the people I snowboard with, like I learned to not bring these things up. But I have other friends that we like to talk about this. We like to be like on the same page and with the, the media crew too. And like, okay, are you feeling good about this? Like, yeah. Or like, what are you nervous about? Let's make sure that whatever you're you're dealing with we can be as prepared as possible so but at the same time i'm manifesting i'm going to crush this line you know <laughs> of course <laughs> but yeah it's interesting everybody's got different um, approaches i guess yeah yeah i guess kind of the in-between is like manifesting absolute confidence and trusting your gut mm-hmm. and, and of knowing if something's off like sticking with that um it, if nothing comes to mind where we can move on, but I'm curious if, if you've got any like examples of where um, you, you were weighing up a line or, or something for, for a long time. And the, the last time you, you said no to something or, or walked away from something um, because of that gut feeling, what, what that, that situation was and, and what the like internal thought process was like behind that. Um. 
well all the times you turn away they don't stick with you as much right because i can tell you about times i didn't turn away and things went bad <laughs> like, please <laughs> that's probably I mean, an even better story <laughs> no but because the times you turned away and like you know you you always have this like feeling like was it the right decision and i just was that just being too worried for no reason you it, it feels like a sense of failure of course and but at the same time like i said i can't even think of one specific good story about that although it happens all the time but i have had like even just when i broke my my neck that was like a classic experience of being under the pressure feeling stress kind of like winging it because I just felt like, well, you know, it, it was that happened um, in 2010. And I was in the whistle back country and I was filming filming for absent at the time. And it was in March and I had been really busy that season. And I, have, I didn't have that many shots and I was kind of stressing out. And that day and I was also pretty burnt out. I was pretty burnt out. I was feeling pulled in every direction. And that day we tried a few things in the morning. Nothing was working out. We were not getting footage. And, you know, March, late March is kind of like the go time. Every crew was out there. It was a beautiful day. And it's also you have only about a month left to get all your best footage. And so we went to this new spot called the Blowhole. I was with Annie and Paul Watt at the time and um, a photographer too. And we looked at this beautiful blow blowhole. Do you know it? It's in Whistler. Yeah. It's like an ice, ice wall. It's very classic. Most people build wall rides onto it. So you, you like slide on the, on the ice and it makes beautiful pictures. But the running wasn't really working for that. And so we we're like, okay, that's a bus too. And then I was looking at it and I was like, you know what? what about I just go from the top like there's a cornice at the top and I just air over the ice and like land on the ice and I wasn't that into the idea even but I just felt like I had to do something cool like you know <laughs> I was just like the day is getting late we're not finding stuff and you get kind of antsy after you're sledding around all day trying to find productive like things to do and so everybody looked at me with like a bit of a doubt <laughs> not thinking that was a great idea and even the filmer was like you're gonna like before I drop he's like you're gonna go really slow right and I was like oh yeah for sure <laughs> like on the radio and then in my head really what I said in my mind was like don't go too slow you always go freaking too slow <laughs> you always go too small so I dropped in and I just yeah I just went way it was a, an overhanging cornice and I couldn't look from the top because I just didn't want to stand on the cornice I was just kind of winging it and the last bit of the cornice was it looked like powder but it was ice so it sped me up even more and as soon as I took off in the air I was like I'm for sure breaking well I can't land on my back because I'm breaking my back so I have to land on my feet and I will probably blow both my knees that's what went through my head as I took off <laughs> and I was like that I think that's the best case scenario <laughs> and then so I was in the air and then I landed instantly like it whipped me to to the back like to my back and then my head whiplash backwards on the ice and yeah I 
I didn't know at the time I was fully out of breath. I was just laying on the ground. Like I couldn't breathe. And after 30 seconds, my, I could breathe again. I was, I had tingles in my, my hands and legs and I was, I couldn't move yet. And then people were around me. And then eventually I was like, I think I'm fine. Like I could breathe. I think I could probably slide down. Let me try to sit up. And um, I could not move anything like as soon as I tried to lift my head it was the sharpest pain in my neck and I was like oh shit I think something's wrong with my neck and they called the helicopter and and uh yeah it was it was crazy that day too the helicopter took two and a half hours to come I was freezing but another friend of mine got buried in an avalanche JP Walker and then this other friend filmer Hayden Ranch broke his wrist he had an actual I think open fracture and the heli went to him first and they're like are you the neck injury and he's like no and so they left him there <laughs> came to me I felt so bad he was like damn it everybody was needing help that day but uh, yeah that was just a classic moment but honestly during that time, I was so burnt out and I was not doing well internally, emotionally. And it, it's like I manifested that injury. I truly believe that. Wow. But Yeah, I got pretty lucky because the doctors after were saying, like, it's called a hangman's fracture. It's a, your C2. And they're like, normally, almost like 90% of people who do this break, like die instantly because it stops your breathing. But luckily, because my fracture was stable, it didn't touch my spinal cord and I was able to keep breathing. What does it mean fracture was stable? The, uh, it means the bone was broken, but it was not moving. Oh, it didn't hit you. Yeah, it was yeah. just like a stable fracture. So as, yeah, the every nurse, like, you have no idea how lucky you are. To I feel like you, you could have killed yourself trying to stand up from that situation isn't like rule number one you like isolate the neck in that situation me too and even more when they came to rescue me which i'm so so grateful to the search and rescue team um i don't know who they are i but thank god we have that program but they had to stabilize me to put me in the helicopter and so they had to put this thing around my neck and uh, it, it felt like they were ripping my head out of my body. And I was crying and screaming. I was like, please stop. I was like, I'm not paralyzed yet, but I'm about, I think I feel like it could be now. <laughs> so, but it was fine. So it was really stable, I guess. <laughs> Lucky. Lucky. So how, what did recovery look like? Like how, how quickly did you get like the feeling, like the use of your arms and legs back? oh no the arms and legs like it, they were tingling for a moment but I couldn't move oh, yeah. them right after so I was like okay I'm good I'm good um and that's why I thought I could sled out of there and then until I tried to move my head um so I I all I had so I actually walked out of the hospital the next day with a neck brace and I was, they were like okay you're good to go I'm like what do you mean and they're like they're like yeah you can walk out of here with this brace and uh I tried, they lifted the bed up and I'm like, I'm not ready. Like I swear I'm not. And I tried to get up and I almost passed out. But the reason is because I hadn't eaten in 24 hours. So I was just like blow blood, blood, low blood sugar. Uh, so they gave me a sandwich and orange juice and I got up fine. <laughs> I got up fine. It was like, a, they said a one year recovery, but really I was starting to serve four months after 
I was vacuuming maybe two weeks after with my neck brace. It was like, it was just like really, like I had to walk around in a neck brace for four months. No, gotcha. two months, two months, four months. Yeah, two months. Wow. I was lucky. Yeah. And I didn't need the halo one. The halo one is like where they have to like uh-huh. uh, screw into your skull. Like what a nightmare that would have been. Yeah. <laughs> what did, um, what did the fall, what did the like getting back on a snowboard look like after that? Um, it was, yeah, there was definitely fear there. And I remember the year after I went right back into filming for this Rome movie called The Shred Remains, which I went right back to filming rails and in like Minnesota and and I was definitely pretty timid. I was like, I remember the first rail I was hitting still to this day and it like took me a while to make it to the end and there was a huge drop on the side and like it hadn't been a year since my, they were saying a year recovery and I'm in December hitting street rails in Minnesota. So I was definitely timid, but that's how it was back then. Like there was no proper rehab or recovery plan. Like at least I did a bad job of it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but like, you know, after a while it slowly came back, my confidence like came back and I, I could tell like my body was getting stronger and, and yeah, I feel, felt totally fine, but like it definitely, um, it didn't scare me from snowboarding, but it was just a, a, a statement of how much you need to listen to your gut and you need to, to, to prioritize your well-being and your safety and over pressure and expectations. And yeah, that's, that's what it really taught me. Mm-hmm. And actually, this is what during the, the recovery of that injury that actually so much happened from that. That's when I... I decided to make the little things too. Like the the little things was like um, this environmental film that we did. And I was really afraid to, to do that. And um, because nobody, I thought the snowboard industry didn't want (laughs) to hear about the environmental side of things. And I knew I'd be called a hypocrite because I have a snowmobile and all that, but I just decided to take the leap and yeah, I wanted to. I wanted to make a statement that's beyond just myself. I wasn't, I think at a point, snowboarding was great. And I had reached most of, not most, not like I didn't have more goals, but I just didn't want it to be all about me. And I felt like I needed to give back. And and as someone who studied ecology and I've been, who have known about and worried about uh, the environmental emergency and crisis my whole life, ever since I was a child, I was like, I am really grateful for this snowboarding opportunity, but at the same time, like what happened to my initial purpose and mission. And yeah, I, I, I tried to merge the two and it worked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Tell us a little bit more about that. I saw in, in, in watching the trailer for that, there was a line that stood out to me about that. And, and I think it, uh, it was without a personal connection with nature, it's difficult to find the resolve to protect nature or something like that. And, and that's something that um, for me, it, it's been the more time I spend in nature, the more I, I, I do want to um, make the sacrifice to, to preserve it. What, what speak more about the, that journey for you and then the process of making that film, because it's, I, 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 I know you got David Suzuki on it, right? Yeah. 
yeah we did well yeah i think it's like the goal was to i mean because so much has changed not from then but still back then education was so it still needed today but you know there was so much um criticizing and like it was really difficult to talk about these environmental problems without being absolutely perfect like even david suzuki was getting criticized for having too big of a house or like you know to so i was really like afraid of that and i wanted to have to be able to have credibility even though like you know it's it's the one thing that as soon as you try to do something good people will try to criticize what you're doing wrong you know but then at least i was like you know if we can just keep being silent then nothing's ever going to change and we have to accept that we're all part of the problem but we can all be part of the solution as well and to your point i think snowboarding if anything could be a great connector uh, to nature for people and it can be a great tool to activate communities too on things that you care about so yeah i think that if we could really make that statement and get people to be outside more and fall in love with nature there's a, a much higher chance they will be willing to protect it or to act on it at least mm-hmm. yeah the um I, I think about that a lot as well well in that um like if you if you i, I could say let's say you take diet you cut down your meat consumption people asking why you're not vegetarian if you're vegetarian people asking why you're not vegan and and if you're vegan like people asking like you like why you're not a good enough vegan and that like you can get into debates about like if you're you're having honey or or if this wine is like is like you has too much of an environmental footprint etc and that there's so much like progress with so much of the solution that is lost because people are criticizing people who aren't perfect you know you nailed it exactly yeah. we we and i think we've lost yeah we've lost so much time to so much precious time finding solution coming together and just accepting like you know our faults but like just by pointing the fin- pointing the finger at each other and I, it really i think it's changed a lot like a lot more people are seeing the big picture but still some people like really don't get it but um it's a big issue. It's a very complex issue. It's not going to be fixed overnight and it cannot be fixed only by a small number of people, just environmentalists or activists alone. It has to be um, a global effort from politicians to individuals. And it has to be, you know, we have to accept that it's not going to be perfect and it's it's we're going to make mistakes as we go but we have to get going and (laughs) stop criticizing each other yeah yeah how do you speak more about how um like like advice you would give to someone wanting to 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 make to more step it it takes more steps in that direction because like the the challenge that 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 i grapple with and, and and a lot of people do is um like one, like knowing how urgent it is, wanting to, to make a difference. But like, it, it's like the, I'm not sure if the right word is like resilience fatigue, but like things like taking a snowmobile out to powder, like is in some ways like replenishes like your reserves of stoke that allows you to make more sacrifices in some way. How, how do you yeah. go about like 
responsible use of 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 carbon to allow you to be like yeah continue to fight you know well i i just look at the big picture right so i'm a human being and i need we all need to work we all need food we all need resources we all need water and air from the moment i'm born i i had diapers on my butt that i didn't choose but were made out of oil i didn't make that choice you know it's like okay so i'm always going to be guilty to some level and i just think that we need to focus on our own lives and our own skill sets our own um assets and and resources like so of course some people i would say like single mothers who are just struggling to survive and you know i don't expect them to like volunteer and go out of their way and and like keep up on all the news like obviously like you know some people more have more resources than others and i think it's a matter of knowing where your skill sets can come into play and where you can make a difference even if it's a small one but I think that as we see each other using our skill sets to give back, it influences others to do the same. And it just shows that we're caring. It shows like, and then the more we talk about it, the more it's, it's shared and then the more people activate on it. And then that's the only way forward really. And the recharge is so important. Even myself, I've been involved in some of these causes like, in phases like sometimes I go really deep and I, I I get borderline depressed it's really depressing place to be in to be fighting like I'm just and you're getting like you know you can be fighting for poverty or solving world hunger you will have no criticizing you will only have praises you know but the environmental movement you're just you're making enemies everywhere you go you're getting like you know judge and criticize and and it, it's just it gets really hard you're just trying to give back you're just trying to talk about something that affects us all and that, like our well everyone's well-being depends on but you're still being attacked all the time anytime you sh- you share something <laughs> about it so i i think i i <clears throat> i think things pretty personally at times and for me it gets really heavy when I'm just trying to do a good thing for the common good and I'm getting like personally attacked it can be really challenging and I think that's why a lot of people are silent too a lot of people care and I know this for a fact I know other athletes uh, I'm on the board of Protect Our Winters Canada and I know for a fact there's other athletes who refuse to join because every time they post about climate change they lose followers, they get attacked. So they're like, I care, but I just can't, I'm not willing to take this hate. So yeah, it's really difficult, um, but you have to remain positive. And this is why the recharge, like you said, is really important. And for me, I, I, um, I legitimize the use of a snowmobile for safety and I legitimize it as a tool for the job just like biologists use helicopters sometimes to you know like collect data on certain population or whatever you need like you know so (laughs) we need to stop criticizing each other on these things because even like one flight at east coast to see my family is worse than my whole year of snowmobiling 
what I do about that, you know? So it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one, but for me, it's like the, the worst thing that you can do is do nothing. And actually even worse than that is someone who does nothing and is just talking negatively on someone who's actually trying. Mm. So that's the way I see it because it's just so hard to, I, I see so many people fighting the good fight and they're getting crushed and crushed. And, and I know some of them who stopped because they were just too hard emotionally. And sometimes I see myself getting close to there and I'm like, okay, I need to go surfing. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. and I mean also like and that's for me speaking as a pretty privileged person so like I like just like I see all the people at Fair and Creek for example I've been there a few times this summer and fall and they have sacrificed so much to be there and there's a lot of people indigenous people and they're getting so much confrontation and it's heartbreaking it's like how how are we like in the state of the world where it's so obvious that we're running out of resources and we are hurting ourselves you have peaceful people who are sacrificing their own time with their family their work everything like their comfort of their homes to be there full-time and they're being brutally arrested they're being like subject to racism and they're being called hippies and and judge with so many assumptions and I I think it's just so unfair and I think we have to open our minds and just we have to come together and find common ground with respect and people have to understand like issues like this we all want the best like you know it's not like for example Fair Creek it's not anti-logging if anything we want to make sure the logging industry has a job in the next five years you know these jobs being lost are not just the effects of environmental laws there's a lot more to it we have just taken too much too quick it's just it's just simple and so <laughs> i don't know i went on a huge rant there but sorry. no 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 that was that was all gold don't worry i i think like when i think about fairy creek which um for for anyone who's who's not familiar um fill, fill me in the gaps here but um basically and i think in, in a lot of Canada, but specifically in Vancouver Island, there's only 1% of our, 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 our native old growth forests left. And um, I, Teal, someone, or basically some logging corporation has plans to, to, to log that final 1%. And there's been um, over the last year, or how long is, has this blockade been taking place for? It's been over a year, yes. And oh. yeah. No, please. And um yeah this so fairy creek situation is just one of so many right so the fairy creek people think it's all about fairy creek but really fairy creek is the movement that's hoping to save all these forests and it's not just teal jones there's a lot of other logging companies and it's not against these logging companies necessarily it's just we have to do it better and if we don't i'm sorry but these logging companies will run out of profits in the very very short term anyways and they know this but it's kind of like this fight to keep making the the biggest profit in the like in the short term and i just think like in matter of biodiversity in a matter of a carbon uh carbon sequestration potential like our old growth forests are so important for our waters for our salmon 
and like so much like you said so much is already gone like we're talking like this is like the last little bits left and people are fighting to take it like it's 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 quite mind-blowing it's quite mind-blowing but I I do think the solution is always coming together and but at the same time you have in order to come together you have to make noise you have to make noise for people to pay attention and that's why these protests and these peaceful blockades have been the people movements have always been the best way to create change throughout history it's the only way that truly works unless governments are willing to do it on their own which was what premier john horgan promised when he got elected it was one of his main campaign points that he would put a moratorium on old growth He's the one who paid for this strategic review of the old growth and promised to implement all these recommendations, which he has not done. And he has, in fact, kind of like just made these little tiny deferrals happen or really short term. But it just kind of seems like a media catch to make people believe that it's taken care of when really logging is happening at Ferry Creek right now and all over B.C., and it's a lot of old growth and it's it's like a race to get the last bit so I think that you know that's why people are standing up and I'm so impressed I've never seen a movement like Fairy Creek firsthand and even in history I there in Canada there's not been much like it like there's been a thousand over a thousand people being arrested it's the biggest act of civil disobedience in Canada's history and still our government is not coming forward to do what it claim it would do so you know it's 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 up to us to hold our governments accountable accountable and it's it it relates to indigenous sovereignty and truth and reconciliation it, it relates to poli- police brutality and like the enforcement that's been happening down there is very very wrong um so if we don't stand up for these things, they're going to keep happening. And I'm just so proud of all the people and so thankful to the people who have sacrificed so much of their time and their lives to be there and do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what, what comes up when, when you share that is that um, like the uh, individuals stress so much about um, like small diet changes and, and, and the, the impact that the, the energy it goes into to changing those habits. Um, Whereas if, if people can come together to like uh, stand up and, and allow governments to make those hard decisions or, or pressure governments to make those hard decisions around oil, around timber, around old growth, that's like infinitely more like impact on the environment than those little, little diet changes and things in, in the grand scheme of things. Uh, For sure. I think... I mean, we like even like I remember being in elementary school and collecting your like bread bag, like little clip things that you like (laughs) and be like, oh, we recycle plastic and we're going to save the world. But, you know, not enough has been done. And like it's we're at a time where our individual habit change is not going to be enough. So we need policy change. We need individual change, of course, but it, it can't save the world alone so policy is where you have the potential to create big change like you said mass scale change and it's up to our leaders to do that but what people don't understand is that the leaders are really up there to do what we demand so 
our politicians are constantly being lobbied to to keep these corporations these oil and, and like logging or whatever mining corporation like to get these subsidies and to keep those those um, industries going and we don't have like unless you have these people standing up like who's defending the resources and the land and the environment so that's why there's an imbalance and I think if everyone is just looking at their jobs and you know like I wish people could see the big picture like of course it's about people's jobs but which jobs are going to be out there if we don't have an environment or a resource available to provide these jobs it's pretty simple to me like I feel like you could get that in elementary school even but (laughs) it just doesn't seem to compute with people Um, they just think it's like you know protest or environment is against industry and it's just like it can't work together where it's going to have, there's going to be a cut. Yes, we can't like operate on infinite growth models, I don't think, because the resources is just are not there anymore. But the only way forward for the economy is to do it sustainably or else the economy is not there. Like it's just, it's not rocket science really. So um, yeah, we'll see what happens, but we are way off target to meet our yeah. our global like climate goals right now and it's it every year every year they say this is our last chance to (laughs) to make these changes and i know it means a lot of big decisions for our leaders but the more people stand up the more people go in the street to ask for it the more they feel the pressure to take those decisions to make those climate uh, goals being met because if not they're just here from those lobbies so yeah I think, yeah, people power is important. Mm. I think when uh, when you were talking earlier about um, like expectations and how someone like a, like a single mom, it's like you, you can't expect them to have like an, an environmental conscious or reading the news center of their priorities because there's so much more going on. I feel like with like public leaders, um, there's, there's so much pressure from lobbyists and being reelected and, and like um, the, the sad reality is, is, is economy is so much a part of like what gets them elected that they only really take action on what's going to get them reelected next time. And for so long, um, providing lip service on these environmental issues or saying they've done something gets them reelected. And it's not until people actually really stand up on these things and, and take an action that they, they that it's going to sway public opinion and people are going to start making taking more action on it you know you nailed it yeah exactly so it's unless we stand up for these things and in a big way it's gonna it's i mean it's gonna keep happening but at the same time you know (laughs) a lot of the population is is like divided right now like even like in america and canada too I guess a lot of population wants to keep uh, extracting and and that's why I'm like okay well the governments have like a tough job like they have like you know they have to to please the public but there's a lot of promises that are not met and we have to hold them accountable and some things you cannot deny like and that they need to be doing so um yeah I'm all for the people And keeping the pressure to so that we have a future that is worth living, really.
And on that note too, it's like, I think that we are like, you know, I see a lot of people taking action that have so little, they're already like, they, they don't have much money, they don't have much time and they still like find ways to give back. And I do know a lot of privileged people who have so much time and resources and don't really do much. And sometimes it's just a matter of like giving them opportunities to do so. Um, but I just find like, it's really important for us at Outdoors People that we recognize our privilege to be on these lands. And I think it's, it hasn't been a mutual relationship. It has been like, you know, we've taken so much, we benefit so much from nature, from the outdoors, from the mountains we play in, from the ocean we surf in, but the reciprocity is not really there. Like, you know, what are we doing so much time we spend there enjoying it and we want it pristine, but what are we doing to how much time, how much resources are we spending to make sure these places are protected? So if we can all come together and like realize that and just find ways where we can give back I think it can make a huge difference and I think anyone who, who is in Canada and able to afford playing outside and afford snowboarding and going to a resort should be able to afford a bit of their time or skills to give back even if it's in a tiny way you know not in a, like a, a pressured way but that's what I, I try to influence people to do. Yeah, very well said. Look, Maria, I want to uh, be, be respectful of your time, but um, to, so one last area I kind of wanted to, to explore is um, around um, r- routines, habits, and, and, and practices. And that um, the, the reason I started this project is, is the idea in that, um, like, developing a, a deliberate practice with the outdoors is a is like a method to better achieve flow states to, to better reach those those states of, of inspiration healing and and connection and um in, in one of the articles i read they, they, they noted your bookshelf and um the the mix of ecology new age philosophies and, and things like that I'd, I'd love to just to give some space for you to share um what's on your bookshelf or what your your practices look like i know you mentioned manifesting a couple of times and so yeah talk more about that yeah i don't think i have like i'm not like a i like a bit of structure for sure i like i love yoga but i definitely don't do it every day and i love i i love the art of meditation and and i i don't think i do my meditation is more into like yeah surfing or being out in environment and making sure like you you take a moment and to like find quietness and focus on your breathing and even like duck diving a million times sometimes I'm totally like just in my thoughts like I'm like okay I just was not here I was just totally like, maybe in a flow state that's not actually really enjoyable when you're when you're duck diving forever but no I, I just find it a lot in nature um and I try to, to make time to, to slow down, to slow down and, and focus on finding those moments of stillness and manifesting. And, um, and I go in phases. Sometimes I can be really good and, and showing gratitude too. I have this like uh, little cloth art that my friend gave me years ago, my friend Chanel. And it just says like, count your blessings and breathe 
and just like to just remind yourself that every day just count your blessing and, and breathe and it's 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 so easy to be overwhelmed and I think I'm a real real victim of that like even my life is amazing but I will always find ways to to stress myself out over the smallest little details and I think a, a lot of people can probably relate because like you know from like like our, our lives are so fast and it's it's really fun but it's like it's it's non-stop so I think that it's really important to to find these moments I recharge I think I'm an introvert and I don't know if that's a true definition but I recharge when I'm alone and although I love people and I love to socialize so for me finding that time alone of stillness is really important and you talked about flow state and I think that's that's definitely something you find in what we do like when you're snowboarding or even on like really good wave and and I don't like people have maybe different definitions of the flow state but it's just like you know when you feel good and you feel confident in in a fearful environment and like the fear just disappears and you're really exposed but fully committed it's, it's something really special and I I don't know I think it's it's for all the people experience that I think it's yeah really magical and I recommend it to anyone mm-hmm. but uh, yeah the books yeah most of my books are about like yeah ecology and um kind of like I have this book about the price of inequality like I'm just like either or or like kind of spiritual or self-help like the art to forgive and say no I don't know I don't I don't think my books are they're all over the place but I like that I like variety I like diversity and I like new subjects and even if it's finance or if it's a cooking or so yeah mm-hmm. if you have good <laughs> book recommendations let me know i always love those i i in, in this article i read i i saw a reference to to gary schneider who is someone i'm just uh exploring have you read anything by by him mm. which title are you taking about um I, i'm not sure what specific title he, he's like a um ecologist and, and poet from like the 1950s and oh whoa no yeah. i don't know i don't know i'll look, okay. I'll, I'll look a, a book i um if i had to get a recommendation though is um hey uh jack kerouac's the dharma bums oh Have yes yes so i just finished reading it. it's a it's like a, a beautiful book for that kind of um like that that slowness jack kerouac mm-hmm. does like an amazing job at like articulating that but i um i just found out that uh, his uh, the character who writes mostly about is this character called Jeffy. And uh, that, that was actually based around this poet and ecologist, um, Gary Schneider. Cool. Yeah. That's wonderful. I'll make sure to check it out. Those are great. Yeah. I really like those. So um, somebody gifted me braiding sweetgrass. Ah. Big classic right now, but it's beautiful. Mm. There's so many good books, but I am a slow reader. So just mm-hmm. it takes me time <laughs> i kind of like the audiobooks now too for the drives mm. it's it's kind of cool cool well marie this has been so enjoyable it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you we, we've spoke about a, a lot of topics and um yeah I, I i think um we've got a lot from from your experience as an athlete your experience as an environmentalist and and just all the wisdom you sow in between that 
No, thank you. I um, I really appreciate these conversations with you. And yeah, thanks for having me on your project. And I'm really yeah grateful for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Mountain Whispers. I, I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed recording it. In the show notes, you'll see a bunch of cool links. Uh, there's an article uh, about Maria's, Maria's Cobb House, um, as well as some cool photos. There's a link to the documentary she created, The Little Things. Uh, there's a link to Protect Our Winters and a link to a really good article about the, the Fairy Creek Brocades. Uh, as always, you can support this podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you use. And uh, in the show notes, there's also a link to connect with me. Thanks.